you have a lot of things going against you. You're competing against founders who have started companies before. Those people inherently have like a lot of benefits and a lot of things on the table. You're competing against people that have domain expertise years ahead of you. You, you, you're competing against a lot. Like it's hard. Like it's through and through hard. I think the trick is velocity. Welcome back to season four of the Founders Couch. This is a talk show about the most inspiring student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. I'm your host, Catherine Jang. I hope you all had a refreshing start to 2021. We've got a fantastic episode ahead of us. Today, I'm joined by guest co-host Frederick Dasso an MIT grad and senior contributor at Forbes. Fred, how's it going? Catherine, it's going great. Um, it's been a busy time of the year, just like most uh, individuals, but um, things are going well. I keep meeting great companies to ride on at Forbes, and you know I'm learning myself uh, student entrepreneurship, so it's wonderful. Love to hear it. And a little bit about Fred. Fred writes extensively on college students' triumphs and failures in their journeys in entrepreneurship. And I first came upon Fred's work on my LinkedIn. And in our first meeting, it was clear how strong our bond was in wanting to lift up the work of student entrepreneurs. And we knew we had to work together. Fred, I'm curious, what got you in a writing about college entrepreneurs in the first place? Well, it really started during my junior year of uh, school at MIT, where a buddy of mine wanted some press coverage and he thought I knew a bunch of people. Um, unfortunately, I didn't know any journalists at the time, but I had 50,000 followers on my LinkedIn. And so I pitched him that he was, he was game. I wrote an article and, you know, after that, um, people saw it and wanted me to cover their companies, uh, too. And so that's how it all got started. Wow. It's super exciting. The, the rest is history, I guess. Hell yeah, absolutely. The rest is history. And you know what I love even more? The energy of our guest today, John Purifoy. You know, Fred, when you and I were brainstorming who to bring on the show, you immediately thought of John since... You had interviewed John for Forbes last April. Yeah, I mean, John's fan fantastic. And even before I interviewed him for Forbes, uh, we met during the, let me see if I can remember here correctly, uh, during my first semester as, an, as a Rough Draft Ventures uh, fellow, where we went on to invest in his company. It's one of the best performing companies that we've had so far. And, you know, John, he's currently the uh, founder of Floating Point Group, a 14-person cryptocurrency trading infrastructure venture-backed startup. He grew up in Springfield, Missouri, and graduated from MIT with a double major in physics uh, and electrical engineering and computer science. At MIT, his research focused on using AI tools to solve inverse design problems in physics. He holds two patents for novel neural network architectures and has published in Science Advances, ICML, and NIPS. NIPS is very prestigious. Earlier in 2020, FPG raised a $2 million seed round from Angelus founder Naval Ravikant, Steve Kokinkos, and Seabury Global Markets and Box One Ventures. John is an active alumni with MIT and is known for his unique footwear apparel. He likes to wear sandals, just to be clear. The sandals and socks, that's his thing. That's hilarious. Now onto the show. Let's get John on the couch. Hey, John, Fred and I are super pumped to have you on the show today. It's so great to be here. Fred, Catherine, it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I guess starting this off, um, John, where are you from and, and where'd you grow up? So it's a brilliant question. I typically tell people that I am from Missouri. Uh, so I grew up in a small town in Springfield, Missouri. Fun fact, there's 42 Springfields in the United States. 
Um, and it was a relatively small town, right? So you had about 100,000 people or so. There wasn't a huge amount to do. So, you know, spending a lot of time like doing online classes or things like that, those were kind of things that I really enjoyed as a child. Um, and I spent a lot of time growing up there. Um, I did some like fun, crazy things. My father was uh, into like professional stock car racing and things like that. So we used to go-kart race very frequently around, you know, cornfields and things like that. That was really fun. I spent a lot of time doing fun, crazy experiments that I think a lot of people do in the backyard, right? Mixing different things and just kind of seeing what you get as results. Um, and so, so, so that was, I think, what I spent a lot of time on. That's incredible, John, to, to hear the, the backstory of, of um, <laughs> how you are, how you've become the person you are today. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is, that is kinder. That, that you are, you are very kind when you say that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like, I'll be honest with you. I think like a lot of people in this world, right? When you're growing up, there's just so many hours of the day and you want to do so many things, right? I remember I hated texting friends at school. So I tried to make a program to automatically text my friends back, right? It would analyze everything I've ever written and then try to synthesize and create responses, right? And I think the whole point was just, it's fun, right? Like you experiment every day is kind of a whole new day and you kind of want to see where you can take it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I love being a kid. Although I'll be honest with you, I still feel in a lot of ways that I'm still a kid. Um, but no, it was fun. It was really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and John, you know, Fred and I uh, have given listeners a little bit of a rundown of what Floating Point Group does, but how would you describe what your company does in your own words? <laughs> More than happy to. So we do order execution for institutions and groups in crypto. Now, what does that mean? Say that you have some large group and they're looking to buy or sell say, a million or $2 million of Bitcoin. Well, the problem with that is these markets aren't super liquid, right? When you buy a large quantity of it, it moves the price very substantially. There's a couple of stories that kind of show that in a lot of different ways. So what we do is we take those large orders, break them into really small pieces, buy $5 here, $10 here, $20 here, $30 here, and smooth that out over time. So you can do these large purchases, do these large transactions without actually impacting the market. I think that was really our core and our bread and butter. And I think really what you can think about it is we do financial services for hedge funds and institutions and cryptos. And that kind of means both sides, right? That means A, working with them on technology, building, you know, market data systems, building order execution systems. And that also means the service side, right? Which is working with them to help and, you know, execute these different strategies and make these different things happen. John, that's fantastic. And, you know, we appreciate you giving a, you know, a light overview on what Floating Point Group does. But you know, you and I are um, very familiar with your company after having published uh, an article about them in Forbes. But for our audience who may not be uh, as well versed in the world of cryptocurrency, how would you describe what crypto is? And then uh, could you discuss more about some of the fundamental technologies that you use uh, to you know, execute these uh, crypto trades, such as smart order routing? Sure. So let's start with crypto. And I'm going to apologize in advance and, you know, the lawyers and regulatory side of our business would very much encourage that I say this. I think crypto, you really have to split into two different kinds of categories, right? I think there's some cryptos that are meant for trading and transacting. Bitcoin is probably the most infamous of that, right? You talk about that as a digital value, digital store of gold, right? Things like that. Um, and then on the other side, I think you have more things that are more governed towards utility, right? Things that are designed to more you know, provide some sort of value, provide some sort of mechanism in the system. I think Ethereum is probably the most well-known of those. And so I think you can think about crypto in those two buckets. You either think about it as a technology or you think about it as a financial tool, right? Let's talk about it as a financial tool. As a financial tool, Bitcoin is the exact same thing as gold, is the exact same thing as any else, anything else we ascribe a value to, right? We ascribe a value of $1,000 to a Bitcoin. There's a fixed amount of them that will ever be created. 
And fundamentally speaking, you can trade them as therefore speculate around that price, the same way you can with gold, metal, silvers, anything. On the other side, and I think this is the part that's really cool about this, which is, okay, well, you now all have this actually in a digital realm. And the same way that, you know, nowadays I can send you money online or I can go to my bank and wire money to you, you can actually wire this digital cash. And maybe that's uninteresting and that's true and that's fine. But what starts to happen is you start to have this collective virtual machine where perhaps my computer can do some sort of a computation, your computer can do some sort of a computation. And in aggregate together, you can actually achieve some pretty sophisticated stuff. And you can do this through kind of these decentralized systems of this decentralized computing, right? You can imagine a system where I'm gonna install a, a program on your computer and every time I run it, I'll give you a dollar for running it, right? Okay, but that's fine. And then how do you maybe abstract that such that anyone can do this? And how do you make it such that instead of giving a dollar, you give a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? Um, to me, I think that's really what crypto is. I think it's really these two different areas. It's either a financial tool or it's for technologies themselves. And then I think beyond there, I think the question is, okay, how do you really bring upon a value with that? Or how do you bring upon a reasoning for that? Awesome. Awesome. Really appreciate the, you know, the in-depth explanation there, John. Um, you know, and, and to go more into detail with your own personal take on uh, crypto, you know, how did you get into the field in the first place? So it is a fair question. I think I have a similar story to how many people got involved in the field of crypto, which is where I was very interested in finance, right? I think finance is a fascinating field. And, you know, you talk about this from a lot of perspectives. If you come from a data analysis background, there are very few fields, there are very few areas in the world that have such clean data, have such a focus on high resolution data, and have such a beautiful, beautiful place where you can put to practice really, really cutting out cutting edge technology really quickly, right? There's very few places in this world, you know, you talk about like the AI boom that's happening right now, right? Fred, you have a lot of experience with this, working with all the different companies that you see in the sector. It's fascinating because a lot of these companies at the end of the day, the hardest problem 10 out of 10 times is data, right? How are they making proprietary data? How are they getting data more effectively? Well, the cool part about finance is it's actually where most people have very similar data, right? There's a field of alternative data built around other alternatives, but mostly people have similar data. And so it actually comes down to the model. It actually comes down to the technology that you build. And how good is it? And that's really cool. That's really appealing. So for me, I was very drawn to finance. I was very drawn to a field where, you know, it's so, it's so beautifully competitive. It's so beautifully pure. It's so beautifully clear in terms of what data, in terms of what the analysis and what the black box output you're looking for is. Naturally, I was really interested in finance. Uh, my senior year, I was about to go into graduate school and kind of do a PhD in that. And I had a friend of mine who was really deep in crypto and being like, oh my gosh, you got to look at crypto. And, and if you come from any type of financial field and you look at crypto, it's just baffling, right? You're talking about inefficiencies and arbitrages here that are orders of magnitude worse than anywhere else. Right? You can buy a Bitcoin here, sell it there for 5, 10, 20% differences. And that's just stuff you don't see in traditional finance. And so that was really, I think, what brought me into the field in the first place, was really just looking at this market and seeing how inefficient it is and trying to understand why that occurs. I think what actually really propelled me to really actually love the field is when you really start to think about a lot of like big problems in society um, that are really like unfeasible to be solved without Bitcoin or without like cryptocurrencies. Um, and there's kind of a whole conversation about that, but I think that there's technological merit to a lot of what's going on as well. Amazing. You know, I really appreciate, you know, your perspective and really how you've approached this from an academic sense, given your, your background and to, to marry that with, you know, your own personal interest in crypto is, is, is fantastic. And so, you know, you, you decided that like, hey, I'm interested in this field. I want to explore it more. But 
when it comes to starting a company, you know, you usually work with, with the team, uh, co-founders. How did that happen for you? Uh, you know, meeting your co- your now current co-founders at, at Floating Point Group. Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I have a lot of friends of mine and a lot of people, you know, in the startup space are always like, how do you find your co-founders? How do you find them? It's actually the same way you do hiring, the same way you do any type of thing. Um, the trick is to do a project with them. Right. You often joke that, you know, loving someone isn't going on a first date with them. It's getting up every day in the same bed and being willing to live with them. Right. And it's actually very much the same way with co-founders. It's very much the same way with the group. So really how I met my co-founders was I worked on projects with them. I worked on things um, with my first co-founder, Kevin. Well, with, with, I, I had two co-founders, right, Kevin and Van, and they're both incredibly intelligent, push me to be a better person every day. Kevin and I had previously kind of worked on a couple of startups together. He had done research in a lab next to mine. So we had kind of experience, you know, literally living and sleeping in the same room together and working on things. And we kind of knew how we synergized and how we had collective understandings from that. Van had previously founded a company that's now worth, you know, quite substantial sums of money. And him and I were actually in the same fraternity. And we worked on several putting on events together, doing things. And the funny story, and the funny story that I'll tell on this is actually the first thing Van and I ever did together um, was we entered a bad ideas competition, right? Like one of those startup things where you have to come and present a bad idea. And we presented uh, no cash. And what no cash was, was quantum eliminatable money. Uh, it was this idea that will create negative dollar bills. And then if you ever had a positive dollar bill and it interacted with a negative dollar bill, the same way matter and antimatter, when they combine, cancel each other out, we proposed this. Anyway, so we pitched this. We created a pitch deck for it. We had a whole thing. It was great. It was really fun. We won. Um, so anyway, so, so, so how did I meet my co-founders? I worked on projects with them. Um, I had previously known them, met them through the space, and I was just really impressed with both of them. That's, that's so, <laughs> that is so cool, especially, you know, the way that you framed it, you know, working on projects together, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it lends itself to a really natural way of not only seeing how the other person works, but really getting to know, you know, know them in a non-business context. And if Precisely. in that sense, uh, you know, it's, it's more likely that you can work with them towards a, you know, uh, tech or you know financial venture together which you're currently doing now so you know thank you for for bringing um you know for bringing that context john you you started this company november 2017 and you graduated 2018 so this was essentially your senior year um did you ever think oh i'll just be a student for this final year and start this company later why did you think that that was the best time to to start this company yeah i appreciate your question a lot so I think what makes sense on this is to give a context and understanding, you know, about me and like my background. Right? So I grew up and I was kind of joking about how I like to do experiments or I like to do online classes and learning and things. I really loved that, right? I grew up looking at how jet engines were built and wondering how does death work? How does the fluid intake work, right? Things that I'm sure Fred gets to do on a daily basis and I'm incredibly jealous of that, right? I grew up like doing science fairs for Google Science Fair, taking a look at algorithms for trying to track missiles and things like that, right? I loved building programs that I was kind of mentioning, trying to analyze words and understand intelligence and the nature of that, right? I, I, I love the world. I love the, I love looking at the universe and trying to understand it more and more detail. So for most of my life, I really thought that I'd go into research, I'd go into academia, I'd go into that world. And that was really what I wanted to do when I entered undergrad, right? And I pursued things to that extent. I took the most advanced classes I could. 
I got really good advisors. I started doing research. I started publishing. I did a lot of very good things down that track, right? And what conflicted me, and I think the hardest truth in the reality that I think I saw, and I was always, I was always surprised about this, was that actually the people that invent things, the actual brilliant minds of our generation, right? They actually typically aren't the ones that actually end up commercializing and bringing that tech to bear in the market. And that actually makes sense, right? If you go look at the list of billionaires in the world, there's actually very few that have a PhD or advanced research degrees. And like, that makes sense, right? Those are two different fields. Those are two different types of people. And so for me, I became very conflicted. On one hand, I loved learning about the world. I loved understanding it. I loved figuring things out. But on the other hand, I'm kind of at this crossroads where there are people more brilliant than I am that can do those things more successfully than I. And arguably, someone actually needs to bring those things into society. Someone needs to make those things happen. And so I became very conflicted over whether I wanted to go into research and academia or if I wanted to actually go into starting a company. And this really came to head my senior year when we were starting Floating Point Group. We were starting to get traction. We were initially just a hedge fund ourselves. And I'll never, ever forget on the very, one of the first calls we had where I got this question posed to me where they were like, look, if you're going to manage this fund, you can't go get a PhD. And they're like, how much money would it take for you to not do it? And I was like, okay, well, if you had 10 million in asset management under the fund, I'd, I'd consider dropping out. And the funny part is that we broke that and we did quite well. Um, but anyways, the point is that like, I was always conflicted between these two roads. And I think you're exactly right. There are a lot of moments where I'm just like, why can't I do both? Why, why don't I just go for the stars here? And I got accepted to some really great PhD programs. I was looking at great options, things like that. And the good quote actually comes from the show Ozark, which has this very good line in it, which says, actually, I apologize. It might've been Parks and Rec. Um, don't do two things half-assed, do one thing whole-assed. And I think that's actually a really good quote. And it's really important to note, you know, it's actually easy. I honestly don't actually think it'd be too hard to be a student and a founder at the same time. I don't think it's hard to go to graduate school and be a founder. I, I think, you know, there are many people in many walks of life that kill it in this field. But I think if you really want to devote yourself to something, if you really want to wake up in the morning, feel empowered about what you do, look your team in the eye and say, guys, let's put in every waking moment. You have to be willing to commit. You have to be willing to commit 100%. And so it took a lot. And I was really torn about it. I was really conflicted. I went through a really hard, probably about six to eight months where I was kind of weighing these two different things. And I eventually decided I'd do the company. And the fortunate side is like, I talked to a lot of the professors from graduate school and they were actually like, you should go do the company. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, look, there's very few times in your life when you have no worries, no concerns, no nothing. Go do it, have fun. And it's actually been amazing. And I honestly am never really worried about it because I've been pretty, I, I've done well in the academia world. And so I actually think I could go back pretty, pretty, like, like it wouldn't be absolutely difficult, right? Like there's a path there. And so to me, I think that's kind of the answer to the question, which is you're always going to be conflicted. You are always going to have opportunities. And I think you're a fool if you don't try to take advantage of every single one. But I think at the end of the day, when you start to build something, just sink in, try it. And if it doesn't work, do something else. Um, so that's how I perceived it. I don't know if that's the right answer. I don't know if I did the right thing, but I am happy. And I'm very, very happy about where it ended up. I absolutely love that. That quote that you also mentioned earlier, John, definitely want to <laughs> like uh, frame it up on my wall somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. any, any, any time I got many on that, you know, like, let me, I got some great lines over here. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, I just think it's a valid point, right? Like, you know, don't, don't, don't be a servant of two masters. You're always going to be conflicted. You're always going to feel like worse and you're going to feel like, oh, I'm not giving enough to this or I'm not giving enough to this. And it's absolutely dreadful. It's absolutely terrible. This is also actually why, funny enough, 
Um, this is actually why being a student founder is, I think, one of the most amazing things. And I think if you don't found a company as a student, I think you're a fool. It's actually because of risk profiles. When you're a student, you can do anything in the world and it can fail. And it's fine because you're going to get a degree at the end. So no one really cares. If you're a founder and your company fails, well, granted, I'm going to argue that you didn't waste time because you learned a lot of skills. But let's say that, you know, it's a pretty risky profile. Sometimes it works. Most of the time it doesn't. And so what's cool is you're actually combining two of the best risk profiles in the world. You're combining a risk profile as a student where you can do anything, go anywhere, and no one's going to really care because you're going to get a great success at the end. And you're combining that of an entrepreneur where really it's the binary, okay, we either did pretty well or we didn't. And that's actually why I think being a student founder is so amazing because it gives you a time, it gives you an incubation period to really discover, to learn, to understand what you're doing and to really like start fleshing it out, right? I probably started four or five ventures in my undergrad. None of them like were particularly successful and I failed more times than I started. But I think the reality is that it gives you a time to learn those skills. And I think you can't understate the value of that. Absolutely. I think you, you summed it up pretty, pretty darn well there. And so you started this company in November 2017 and the, the coming months that happened afterwards, you were you know, kind of thinking through the pros and cons of pursuing a PhD versus going with this company what ultimately led you to the decision? Like what, what did those couple months look like for you? Sure. Um, so those couple months were hard, uh, right? So, so I was graduating at the time and to give a little bit of context, right? So we started the company more or less in the spring of my senior year and we were all looking at different opportunities, right? Van had offers from all the major banks to, you know, go lead their crypto trading and crypto trading desk. And I was looking at, you know, very nice programs and PhDs and things like that. We'd gotten into this program at MIT Delta V, right? Delta V is effectively like this accelerator at MIT. You can think about it as like, you know, YC. And you're welcome to say whether or not it's better or worse than YC. You know, I'll, I'll argue it's better, but, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Anyways, we got into this program and I, I was very conflicted because exactly. And the problem was also that I was applying for graduate school at the same time. And, you know, if you've gone through the application process for college, you understand the application process for graduate school. It's the exact same thing, right? Essays, take tests. But most importantly, you have to identify who you're going to work with. Because grad school is much more, I'm going to work with this person on exactly this thing, right? It's not a school taking you. It's literally a person taking you. It's a professor saying, I'm going to take this person. And so the problem is that you have to have pretty honest conversations with these people where you're like, hey, I really want to work in your lab. Or I really want to do this. Or I really want to do this. And in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, but I'm starting this company and I really don't know if I'm going to do this. It can be very difficult. It can be very challenging. And I straddled this road a lot. And I was like nervous. I was like, am I coming off as two-faced? Like, am I not being honest with these people, right? And I eventually went to one of my like advisors and I like really, really, really confided in it. And I'm like, hey man, like I'm really conflicted. Like, what do I do here? And he was great, right? This guy had won the um um that starts with an M. I'm so sorry. It's called the Genius Grant. Um, I think it's the MacArthur Award. Yeah, it's the MacArthur Award. Um, so he'd won like the genius grant. He's an incredibly brilliant professor, Martin Soljak at MIT. Like he's, he's an absolutely amazing man. Anyways, I was talking to him about this. I was like, hey, I'm conflicted between these things. I don't know if I'm doing justice to the grad school admissions process. I don't know if I'm doing justice to this. Like, what do I do? How do I go about this? And he eventually told me, he's like, look, grad school will always be there. It will always be a thing. You should go follow your heart. Um, and beautifully upon this was, it was actually nicely timed because then I ended up publishing a pretty good paper uh, towards the end of my senior year that got a lot of publicity, a lot of kind of like importance on it, placed on it. And this was complicated because it was at the same time as we were starting the company. And so there's a lot of stories about like, you know, Van was down in New York raising money with investors and I would like be flying down on the weekends and stuff like that. 
And then we would like go celebrate in like exclusive restaurants in New York with these incredibly wealthy investors because by golly, that's the world of finance. Um, it was, it was fun. It was fun. So it was hard. So I think it was emotionally taxing because I was, you know, I served in the two masters in those cases. And I think, but it was, it was also fun because it was just a matter of, can you not sleep? Right. Can you just keep pushing it? Can you push harder, push harder, push harder? I think it was hard because you have to make hard decisions, right? You have to make hard decisions about what you want to go and where you want to go in life. Um, but I have this old saying as well that says, if you have two hard decisions and you're really conflicted, there's really never a wrong decision. Right? You're never going to go wrong. If you really looked at both options and you think both are good options, you were, I don't really think you can ever make a bad decision there. Um, and I think that was kind of what ended up happening up. So I, I finally made up my mind. I rejected the offer flat out outright. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I went from there. And hey, it looks like you're all the uh, the better for it. So you know, we're, we're <laughs> the founder rather than a PhD student, although I'm sure you would have excelled in that as well. So um hats off to you john for all of your success but now we're going to make things a little bit more interesting with the with oh the goodness year. gracious oh yeah okay you know we, we gave you the softball questions and now we're gonna we're gonna speed things up and make it a little bit harder on you so fire around um you're gonna ask you a few you know fast questions are you ready okay i'm, I'm so ready to go all right here we are all right first uh, uh first question what's unique about being a student founder two full things one age, age is hard through and through. I will not lie at all. When we were hiring our first people, I was 22. Um, and I was having to go into interviews with people that were like 40 and well above. Being able to have confidence and walk in those things and just know that you're doing the right thing and you need to do those things, that's hard. That's hard through and through. People look at you different and they see you different. Age is hard about being a student founder. Um, and I think the second thing is I think you have a different perspective on it. I think a lot of people when they start companies start it out of, you know, either a either a love of something or a love of a field or a love of X, Y, or Z. I think a true student founder, I think true, true, true student founders are doing it non-trivially in part just to learn how to do it. And I think it means that you look at everything with such a more brilliant lens, right? You think about hiring in terms of, okay, what are the pros, cons, where does it go? You think about market segmentation as a research project, as writing a research report, right? You think of building a product as a project where you're going to iterate upon that and you have different milestones. I think that's a totally different mindset. I don't think most founders in this world, aside from student founders, really bring those things to the table. So to me, there's two things that student founders have. One, which is this idea of like, you literally just have such a brilliant, scientifically-minded mindset towards it, which is, just, I want to learn and I want to grow. And I think the second thing that you have to more combat is age. Fair, fair. Um, you know, it sounds like student founders have this unique, uh, you know, have to develop this unique skill set in order to be successful, which you are. So appreciate you sharing that. But, but let's, get, let's, let's get a little bit deeper into this now. If you could distill what you just said and everything you talked about, in uh, the interview so far into one piece of advice for students who are looking to start something, what would that be? Velocity is the most important thing. Velocity is the most important thing. I think this would be the one lesson that I would tell student founders more than anything else. It's velocity is the most important thing. Let me get some context on that. In the field of agile development, right, when you go and build software and like agile methods, you talk about velocity of the team, right? Every week you identify, okay, this is one unit of work. Building this module is going to be two units of work. Building this API endpoint is going to be like three units of work. And you measure how many units of work you get done that week, right? And people in software teams always talk about this concept of velocity. How fast are we getting things done? And how much is that speed changing? This week, we only got two things done. Maybe next week, we think we get three. Next week, four. 
Velocity, I think, is the most important as a student founder. Always waking up and asking yourself, how do you learn more? How do you work more faster? How do you work more efficiently? You have a lot of things going against you. You're competing against founders that have started companies before. Those people inherently have like a lot of benefits and a lot of things on the table. You're competing against people that have domain expertise years ahead of you. You're competing against a lot. Like it's hard. Like it's through and through hard. I think the trick is velocity. If every single day you're watching yourself and asking yourself, okay, how much did I really learn today? How many interviews did I do? How many customers did I talk to? What amount of stress did I take in? How do tomorrow I take in a little bit more stress? How tomorrow do I talk to a few more people? How tomorrow do I build a little bit more product? I think that's the key because that velocity compounds. That velocity will take you to the moon and that velocity will make your company bigger and more successful than you could ever imagine. So to me, velocity. Awesome. Appreciate it. But we're not done yet. Catherine, I'm sure you have some more questions for him. Oh yeah, John, John, we're not done here yet. Um, <laughs> third fire. I wouldn't want to be. Let's go for it. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. All right. <laughs> so this one's um, a bit more focused on the here and now, but what's a, a quarantine activity that keeps you sane these days? Oh my goodness gracious. Okay, there's two. And it's hilarious that Fred is on this call because I've been watching him on Facebook. And I'm going to embarrass him too. And it's going to be great. <laughs> okay, there's two. Um, so one of them is working out. I think uh, working out is an amazing way to keep your stress and cortisol levels down. We're spending a lot of the days indoor. We're being very restless, right? I don't know after you, but after three or four Zoom meetings, I just really feel the need to walk around. And I feel like exercising and just getting that out is amazing for taking care of stress and allowing yourself to detach. Um, I think that's first and foremost. Second, and the reason why I have to embarrass, you know, Fred over here, is video games, all right? And my understanding is that Fred's getting back in the world of RuneScape. I 100% respect that. I'm getting back in the world of World of Warcraft. Right, new expansion pack came out, Shadowlands. I'm digging that, I'm enjoying that. So, to me, I think those are the two things exercise and then video games. But I guess I'll just say more generally at least something that commits your mind to something else but work. I think the trick is just finding some activity, something that really consumes your mind, takes it all in, and you ignore and you forget about the rest of the world. For some people, that's music, for some people, that's Starcraft, for some people, that's exercise, for some people, that's video games, right? In many different ways, many different cooking is a reasonable another example, right? A lot of people really love find cooking therapeutic. I think just the trick is just to find something that consumes your mind and takes it off everything else. Because we don't have that anymore. We don't have commutes anymore. We don't have just idle conversation throughout the day. I can tell you, um, TV shows is definitely my my guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, John, that might be a bit a bit of a toughie, but where do you see floating point group going and what are the next steps for John Purifoy? So twofold. First, in terms of where is the company going, world domination, and specifically, I think institutional kind of prime brokerage or institutional full-scale services in cryptocurrency markets, in some colloquial terms, and some people use this like Goldman Sachs of crypto, right? Put simply, I feel that there's a lot that the financial markets can offer cryptocurrency markets, and I feel that there's a lot that cryptocurrency technology can offer financial markets. When you talk about the size of some of these banks, when you talk about things like order routing or execution, these things are incredibly labor-intensive manual processes that are currently done in some of the largest banks in the world. Right? You go talk to someone like at Goldman or go talk to someone like JP Morgan, they'll joke to you about they're, like, they're, they're just a glorified Excel creator right? or Excel spreadsheet maker. The reality is a lot of those administrative tasks can be completely automated by the world of digital assets and digital currencies. And I think that gets me really excited. And then I think within the world of digital currencies, okay, well, to make those things happen, you need to build financial markets and financial systems around that. You need stock markets, you need trading markets, you need interest curves, you need option systems. You need the ability to get fair and accurate pricing. 
right? And I think that those are things that are missing in the market. And I think those are things are holding back the industry from really contributing what it can to the global financial system. So to me, I think that's the future of our company, building those and enabling both cryptocurrency and finance to not only be more efficient, but just be a more effective system overall. In terms of myself personally, I think I'll split it twofold. One is I really want to see where FPG goes. I honestly speaking, I'm, I, to say that like I'm pretty excited by both the team we have and the things that we've made happen is an understatement, right? I get to work with some of the smartest people in the world and they push me to be a better person every day. Um, and I'm incredibly thankful for that and I'm incredibly humbled by who they are and who we have on the team. And so I think for me, like I'm really looking there. I think beyond FPG and like, you know, what's, what's, what's the question of that? I think I love entrepreneur. I think I love founding companies. I think we've learned a lot from this thing and I think we learned a lot about what not to do. So I 100% think that, you know, would love to start another company and see where that goes. A lot of ideas, you know, everything ranging from like AI stuff to mechanical products to how do you do things more efficient in like financial market sectors. Um, but to me, I think, I think it's the beginning of a story, which is where you learn all these things. Um, but that's me. Yeah, it's funny. I, I keep like a rolling journal of like all the lessons we've learned and all the stupid things that we've done over the years. Like we spent 250 hours hiring one person for sales. Uh, that's, like, that's like a lot of hours. Like you as a founder, fine, can work like 12 hours a day. That still took a month of my time to do. Um, and we found an amazing guy who's one of the smartest and most talented people I know. Um, but the hilarious part about it is like, yeah, you can't spend that much time hiring someone like that's atrociously bad. And so it's like things like that. Like, how do you make that process more efficient? How do you do it better? To me, I think that's the part of like startups that is really interesting. I was kind of commenting on velocity earlier. I still look at it a lot in those lenses. So I think that's where I see it personally. So personally, I think it's a matter of building my own velocity and making it such that I can take on any of those ventures and making them happen more quickly. Um, I think for us as an organization, it's really maturing the cryptocurrency markets and building tools that enable those systems to be more effective. I absolutely love that. We, I think we, I can speak for, for the both both of us, Fred and myself, that there's definitely a, a bright future ahead of you, John, and, and definitely can't <laughs> wait to continue supporting you on that journey. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So, 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 I know, I know you guys always do the hardball. Can I, can I turn the tables? Can I ask two hardball questions to you guys? Sure. <laughs> okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay. So, here's my first question. Um, what thing do you think student founders are missing? Like, you've talked to a lot of different people. You guys are very connected to the ecosystem. You're very knowledgeable about different people's perspectives and different things. What do you think either is holding back student founders, or what do you think is the biggest gap that typical student founders make? So, I'm going to go back to your answer, John. And, and, and so, uh, when you mentioned velocity being the, the most important thing about, uh, you know, starting a company as a student founder, most... So we, we both, we all know here that velocity is, you know, is a vector uh, versus speed. And most student founders tend to focus on speed, uh, the magnitude portion of that, instead of the direction, which is, you know, uh, in my opinion, even more important. Most founders, especially student founders, don't tend to ask themselves, am I going in the right direction uh, frequently enough, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with being able to build tight feedback loops around their product or service in order to quit, you know, continually ping in a customer and say like, hey, uh, you know, are we, is, is this solving your problem? And if it's not, you need to change directions, right? Uh, more founders just tend to focus on, are we shipping product fast enough? When in reality, sure. are we building the right thing for our customers? I see that. I see that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's totally a fair statement. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great point, Fred. And 
I, I think I really relate to the piece that you said also around age, John. I think, you know, obviously student founders are typically quite young. They're like between 18 and 22, or if you're a grad student, a little bit older than that. Um, but the challenge for these student founders is oftentimes you're first time founders. And, you know, I think there's definitely sometimes a need for, you know, a little bit of coaching or mentorship along the way, right? Because, I mean, we're all young. This is the first time we've done this. And I think, you know, recognizing that, you know, there are certain areas when it comes to leading an engineering org or leading a product org as like a, a young 22-year-old, there's definitely going to be some points of weakness and and recognizing that and being open to, to some coaching and mentorship along the way is definitely valuable. That, that's totally a fair answer, uh, Catherine. I agree with you. I think like the question of like mentorship and finding good guides along the way is absolutely critical. I think it's a challenge for a lot of student founders. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining Fred and I on the couch today. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, it was amazing. I will say you have one comfortable couch. I think this is an amazing, I don't know where you guys buy your furniture. I don't know if you go to Ikea or where you go for that, but keep, keep it up. You guys have a future in interior design. That was such an incredible episode. Thanks so much, John, for coming on the couch and to Fred for wonderfully guest co-hosting. Make sure to check out Fred's article in Forbes where he dives into the intricacies of the crypto problem FPG is solving. Link is in the description. If you liked hearing from an MIT founder, you might enjoy episode number 26 where we talk with Jenny Shu. If you haven't already, subscribe to Founders Couch wherever you get your podcasts, leave a rating and review. If you want to see more from us or DM me ideas for questions or guests, which again are always, always welcome, follow us on Instagram at Founders Couch. Catch us Friday after next, January 22nd, for another Founders Couch Friday. I'm Catherine Jang, and you've been listening to the Founders Couch. See y'all soon!